conversations that you connect with and react to. SAFM. Kathy Motlatana on SAFM. Let me welcome Russell Rainsberg. He's the executive director of the Rural Health Advocacy Project onto the show this hour. We're going to be focusing on universal health coverage, and it's in line with uh, the commemoration held by the United Nations uh, earlier this week. Russell, good morning. Good morning, Kathy. Compliments. I don't even really enough to say that. <laughs> Wait, don't we say compliments after New Year? Or is it just, oh, is it before I, I New Year as know. well? <laughs> <laughs> I never know, but we always stop around February. <laughs> no, it, it's fine. Don't worry. It's okay. We, mm. we receive it in the spirit with which it comes. So, mm. so Russell, universal health care is a conversation that um, has been taking place for, for a long time in South Africa and something that our government has committed itself to uh, providing universal health care. And that conversation, have, uh, of course, has pro- progressed into the national health insurance and plans to implement a national health insurance um, in, in this country. Do you think that we all agree now about the need for universal health care? I think we all need challenges is how do you find um, two parallel health systems working in common purpose to deliver universal health coverage? Because unlike a lot of developing countries, South Africa actually has a very well-developed private sector or private health system which runs parallel to the public system. And I think the main challenge would be how do we bridge the two to act in a unified way? The conversation is often positioned as one over the other. So you either have a national insurance that's publicly run or you have the system that we have now, public and private. Is that uh, an honest way of, of looking at how universal health care can be implemented and perhaps even what other countries have done? Look, I think many countries have different and, and insurance systems where there's a combination of public and private. You know, um, some work well, some don't. Um, some people have what they call limited schemes where there's still significant co-payments or, or deductibles of them where the government provides, for instance, where services offered under the, the publicly funded system are very limited, and any additions, you know, other places where it's completely publicly funded, you know, so I think there's no perfect universal coverage system. I think what we're arguing in our um, paper mostly Mm. is to say that universal health coverage is just basic. Russell, the the line to you is not great. What I'm going to do is that I'm going to take a quick break so that we can redial you. Uh, I'm really struggling to hear part of what what you're saying. And, of course, uh, I want us to get into this paper um, that you have written, taking a look at how South Africa can strengthen its health care system, especially drawing on some of the lessons that uh, we have learned from COVID-19. The Talking Point with Kathy Motlatana. Weekdays, 9 a.m. till midday. The Talking Point with Kathy Motlatana. Weekdays, 9 a.m. till midday. 
We continue the conversation on the talking point. Russell Rensberg is executive director of the Rural Health Advocacy Project. He's on the line. So, Russell, then let's get straight into the paper um, that you have written around how we can strengthen our healthcare system. No, absolutely. You know, uh, when COVID broke out, um, as the Rural Health Advocacy Project, we obviously had some huge concerns. You know, we didn't know a lot of things. We didn't know how COVID would interact with the South African population. We didn't know how COVID would be managed with um, in a public-private system like the one that we do have. And I think over the course of the pandemic, we've been tracking um, a lot of the reports around the NIC, that the NICD and stuff has been issuing. So towards the second quarter of this year, once we knew that Omri, that we were descending the peaks of the COVID pandemic, we sort of commissioned the research to look at how the country responded to COVID across the cascade. So from diagnostics and testing through to therapeutics, and including things like access to oxygen, right? And lastly, vaccination coverage and to, to what extent our, our inequities were replicated. You know, so the reports, and then based on that, we came up with a series of recommendations of things that we can do right now to start, you know, the process of ensuring that we are moving in the right direction. Because truth be told, up until 2017, the country had actually been doing quite well on a number of um, health system what or um, health system priorities around UHC. You know, we have had increased coverage of maternal and child health. We've had decreases in maternal mortality, which was as high as 400 per 100,000 births 20 years ago. We've had in significant improvements on HIV and TB, but obviously in terms of non-communicable diseases, our response was very, very minimal. And that was one of the biggest fears. You know, over 5 million people live with diabetes and only 1.2 million are in treatment. So, yeah, you know, the, there were all these concerns, and that's why we did the report so we can get a sense of actually what happened and what are the next steps that we can use to influence the system to work towards universal health coverage by 2030. Agreed. Yes? A, a great deal of, of focus has been paid to the primary healthcare sector, um, Russell, and and some of the drawbacks <coughs> that uh, that were experienced um, and under COVID nineteen. Let's talk about where we believe that there have been setbacks here. Look, obviously, the the, the messaging around COVID was one of the biggest setbacks. We were involved in the study with Stellenbosch University in the early days of the pandemic and, and, and we sort of assess health system behaviors after the first wave, you know, so we saw a sharp, sharp drop in, in visits to primary healthcare centers, you know, so from antenatal care to childhood vaccinations to TB and HIV medication collections and testing, you know, and the principal reason for those drops reported by the survey participants was coronavirus fears. You know, so people were very scared of contracting COVID. So even when the facility started opening in May and so forth, people were still hesitant to go 
you know, and, and I think that it, by and large contributed a lot to the sharp decline in access to or access of priority healthcare services. So we ended up seeing sharp declines in TV notifications, you know, and we had two World TV reports come out in 2020 and 2021 that showed that for the first time in 10 years, you know, or in decades, they said, we saw a sharp decline in TV notifications, TV initiations and, and treatment, and unfortunately, an increase in TV deaths. You know, it's funny to note that over the two years of COVID, more people died from TV. The official COVID statistics is about 103,000 people died. Over the two years, 129,000 people died from TV in South Africa. Yeah, so I think it was, it was a difficult thing to do. Sure. That number is absolutely staggering, Russell. Well, what's more staggering, Kathy, is that 330,000 people died potentially from COVID. Mm. You know, the official statistics is 109 or 102. The excess deaths, which were tracking deaths over the same period, right, are three times as much as that, is 333,000. Um, reports from the, the Medical Research Council suggest that as much as 85% of total excess deaths could be attributed to COVID. You know, and then if we're looking at a number of about 300,000 people dying from COVID, you know, many of them never reaching a health system. Mm. You know, we can, you know, sort of make an assumption that we don't know enough. And the vast majority of people that were affected by this were black and poor people who have an inverse care relationship with the health system, meaning that we delay access. You know, and with COVID, if you presented late, your chances of survival was very poor. You, so we I, need to learn about yeah, this now. Yeah, you know, I'm thinking about you're raising the COVID scenario, but on an on a day-to-day -day basis, right? We have South Africans that delay care um, <coughs> simply because yeah, they are unable to access. Um, healthcare services for whatever reason. And an example would be this, right? If you have, uh, let's say, a, a clinic that offers free healthcare, a hospital where people can access free healthcare, but I don't have transport to get there. Um, it's hard for me to get there. When I get there, the queues are so long, I'm not attended to on the day that I have presented myself. So I have to keep going back and it's, it becomes more and more expensive. That in and of itself, means that in as much as the service is available, it's largely inaccessible. No, it's absolutely true. And, and <coughs> part of that, I don't have COVID, but I have a cough. Look, I think one of the things, this is one of the reasons why you're seeing globally people talking about, even in South Africa, the recent and causes of death report got to reframe. You know, the MRC published a report saying the things that contribute to ill health and death rather than just a simple analysis of causes of death. And when you look at that report, we're looking at the whole um, spectrum of issues that contribute to ill health. One of those being obviously excess consumption of, of ultra-processed foods and sugary drinks and like it's, we've got a, an, an, an epidemic of obesity, or they call it body max index levels that are higher. You know, so that's one of the things that if we addressed early on, 
we can probably do a little bit more prevention by regulating the food system, by making sure that the school meals and the hospital meals and all of those kind of things that the state providers are healthy quality meals and start changing the habits of how we live. We can also rethink about how we configure, configure the delivery of primary healthcare services, particularly in large cities. You know, often um, our, un, our employment rates in large cities, official and unofficial, are much higher. You know, so people working in the informal sector, people working in the formal sector. In all of those jobs, you know, missing a day <laughs> means missing money, right? And you have one chance to go to the clinic. If you do go to the clinic and they don't have the medicines that you need, you're not going to go to the clinic again. You know, so, so it's like little service level adjustments that we can make. In, in large areas like Johannesburg, we should really consider using um, township GPs and other GPs as centers of primary health care mm. so that people can access later in the evening, that can act as one-stop shops, and maybe sometimes can be even cheaper than running underutilized clinics. But we need to do the studies. All right. You know, there are many clinics in Johannesburg that are probably underutilized, and, and you can check um, things like the district health barometer that looks on uh, utilization rates in the public sector and, and, and those have been declining for the last 10 years or so all right you know but we started I'm, off I'm, I'm going, to, I'm going yeah. to pause you there sorry to, to interject i'm going to pause you there we'll continue with russell rensberg in a moment he is uh, with the rural with the rural health uh, advocacy project and we'll continue our conversation on universal health coverage it's time for your latest 11:30 news update Conversations that you connect with and react to. SAFM. All right, we continue the conversation on the talking point, Russell. Uh, of course, I cut you off as you were trying to explain the different models that you believe government could be exploring uh, in terms of how to strengthen our primary health care. I'll give you a chance to finish your thought, and then I'll take Marco Sonke, who wants to contribute to the conversation. No, absolutely. Look, like I think we have to look the the service delivery platforms that we have are in some ways no longer fit for purpose, depending on where they are. We have 52 districts in the country. Each district has a very different contextual reality. And if you take Gauteng City, what I'm saying is, are, are, do we know enough on whether the facilities that we do have are operating functionally? are being utilized by people effectively, and are they fit for purpose? So the point that I was trying to make is given that so many people in Gauteng work, you know, which is very different from OR Dumbo, where people are involved in work opportunities in the informal sector, as taxi drivers, as walkers, as informal sellers, as gig workers, and, and many like that who don't have medical scheme. The clinic isn't a great site for them to access their services because of the reasons that you raised. And I think with the use of health management information systems, we can actually start figuring out which places are well utilized and which are under, and then start thinking about how do we contract in GPs in those areas to be able to see people at times that are convenient for them, right? Because often what they need is a, maybe a doctor's note if they're in formal employment, or they need to be able to work quickly so that they don't lose money from not being at their stalls or driving their taxis or whatever else it is that they're doing over the course of the day. And I think I certainly think there's room for that. And some of the 
the, the recommendations in, included in NHI reforms would allow for that. Our current institutional arrangements don't allow for that seamless um, con um, connection between public and private services. They run separately. You know, and I think that's something that we really should consider. And 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 maybe I just want to make a final point: is 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 in your news insert now? You know, the bigger the risk actually came to us. You know, Stacy say now saying that inflation is being is in the upper bounds. So that's around seven point eight percent, if I heard correctly. You know, the Reserve Bank's target is six percent. So needless to say, we're going to probably have a December rate increase meaning that our cost of living will increase even more and people will have less money to spend on other areas, particularly on healthcare. You know, so we are in a deep crisis and, and, and there's a need for us to start reimagining, not just preparing for the next pandemic, but also how do we use the money that we do have to run better public health services because there aren't much chances of the funding increasing. Thank you. All right, thanks for that, uh, Russell. Let me go to Makosonke in Jablani. Good morning, Makosonke. Hello, can you hear me, Kate? Hi, Makosonke. Yes, I can. Yes, yes, yes. Kate, I just wanted to say that um, last year in February, we started a business chamber called Utungoleza Business Chamber of Commerce, where uh, one of the industries that we are targeting is the health industry. Um, um, as, a, as a township based um, uh, um, business chamber, uh, we've realized that um, there is a challenge on issues of health. And remember that it, it, it's actually not even helping the business with the health challenges that we're experiencing in the township. I mean, if you go to the clinics and the hospitals, there's congestion there. And, 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 and one, of the, one of the things that we are targeting to do is to, is to start with the primary men, uh, mental health care you know, which will then build up into um, uh, creating those industries, um, the, health, uh, the healthcare industries, which are, uh, will be accessible to each and every member of the community, because currently it's only um, uh, helping those who can afford it. And, and our government, I, I don't know how, uh, when will they implement it. And, and, I, and I also believe that as business, we definitely need to get involved. I mean, if we leave things to the government, I doubt things will, be, will, will get done. You know, because our government is not governing our country from um, using the business model in how they govern the country. I mean, if they were using a business model, I do believe that they can achieve a lot of things. But however, as a business chamber, we are taking it upon ourselves to ensure that industries like your, your healthcare in the township, it is a reality as we are building the township economy. So I just wanted to say to you that um, we're not just, um, we, there's something that is, happening is just that currently we would love to get support in terms of um, facilities and stuff like that because obviously you know that to host programs like um, um, a mental health programs to, and uh, because we are engaging from a point of mass participation so we want to make sure that um, uh, we reduce the, the backlog I mean uh, we, are, we are next to the Gimlangen hospital where there's so many challenges there you know so, yeah, basically, I just want to say that um, as a business chamber, we are basically... And, and, and Makosonke, uh, what are some of the things that, that you have been doing to, to try and get involved as a local business chamber? Um, look, one of the things, we've been engaged in the hospital, and, um, and, and as, you, as, as I've, I've, I've made you aware, we only started last year in February. 
So, so there is a program that put together to ensure that we reduce the, the congestion that is happening in, in hospitals and clinics. Like Begimilangi and currently, there's so many challenges there. And we, we want to make sure that we don't exist there and then we're still sitting with problems of backlog in the hospital. So, so basically from a point of view of, as I've mentioned that we're starting from a point of um, primary mental health care. So we want to take care of that first, you know, because we know that it will definitely, because certain people, they don't go to the hospital because they probably they are sick. It's just that they cannot handle, um, it's starting their, in, in, in their mental health uh, challenges that, that leads to them, uh, their body end up responding uh, and negatively, and then they, then they have to go to the clinic or the hospital. So, so we basically, um, yes, we are definitely doing something about it. Sometime next day, this time, we should have um, uh, abandoned those programs on a mass scale. And, 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 and yeah, I mean, that's something that we definitely are committed to do as a business chain. I mean, I'm the president of that business chain, and that's a legacy that I want to leave for the business chain because I'm not going to stay there forever. Okay. Thank you. Wow, good, good for you, Makosonke. Good for you. Uh, and thanks Thank you. For, for calling in and giving us an example of um, what is possible in as far as the support at a community level for some of the institutions that are overwhelmed and, and are struggling with various challenges. It brings up, a, a, you know, one aspect of the debate, Russell, in that you've got, of course, the private medical health health system that is often seen as over-resourced, right? Um, especially relative to the number of people that it caters to. And this private healthcare system is also the same one. If we go back to that market inquiry um, that looked into the state of healthcare, that was found to have practices that really undermine the very notion of, of access, whether it's how things are priced, um, that that create barriers. Uh, this is for, for access to, to health care. No, absolutely. You know, um, and I think a lot of the findings in the, the half market inquiry spoke to better regulation of that environment, right, so that we could do it. But, you know, remember, we live in a country where it's Section 25 and law of contract is probably um, the most in force. You know, um, we have a constitutional framework, so everybody has rights, everybody, including the privileged, right? And we don't, and I don't think that we'll ever get to a point where we can completely exclude medical schemes or private healthcare because of the Section 25 property rights. But that's my opinion. I think in the short term, what we really need to look is see how we can have these two sectors operate in a unified way, right? And in the first instance, it's about creating the right regulatory framework to ensure that we don't have the kind of things that they talk about in the report, which is over-servicing, you know, utilizing you know, unnecessary procedures, not following referral pathways and so forth, you know, and multiple schemes that, you know, have lots of different ways of how they access healthcare, right? And I think that is almost a much bigger project that we need to start looking at, how the two systems can work together rather than one system, right? Because I think for, as we learn more, that seems unlikely that we would ever get a unified uh, a one country, one health system. What we would have is like we have in England and a lot of other places where we have complementary systems where the private sector can work in the public sector, right? And do certain things under contract, 
and that medical schemes will continue to exist, but we don't have all the details on that. But I think the place that we need to start is really just to understand the problem that we have. And one of the recommendations that we make in our report is that, you know, the National Institute for Public Health of South Africa, right, will house things like the National Institute for Communicable Diseases, the National um, Institute for Occupational Health and Safety into this new unit. And it has significant um, capacity to analyze and evaluate health system data. And our argument in the report is that we can only manage what we can measure. And our priorities should actually be set by the information. You know, and that's not what's happening at the moment. You know, good governance requires good information. So one of the immediate things that maybe won't take a lot of money is really just investing in ensuring that we have the right kind of capability to manage all our health management information systems, to get a better understanding of our disease burdens and who's utilizing care and who's not, and then work in conjunction with healthcare providers in creating targets to, to, to address our priority concerns. Because mm. healthcare needs are unlimited, but the capacity to deliver on them is limited. You know, so if we work in a common purpose to sort of address our population health outcomes, we can utilize capacity in different spaces to be able to maybe achieve better outcomes in maternal and child health, like reduce maternal mortality, like increasing childhood vaccinations, like making sure that um, young women and women in general are able to access the sexual and reproductive health services that they need where they need them. Right. And it doesn't necessarily have to be from a public clinic, it can be from a pharmacy, but there has to be a framework that allows that. Mm. But the thing that must guide us is the information, and we feel that NAPISA can play a very important role in doing that. Similarly, when you look at our biggest challenge over the last 20 years, which has been the response to HIV, AIDS, and TB, we've done very, very well, but we're very far off from the target that we need to achieve. You know, so in terms of the amount of people living with HIV who are on treatment, we're 20% off the 90% target that we've set ourselves. And we need to probably rethink the strategies about how do we have that final push to take us from 50%, from 70% to 90%. And that may require collaboration between ourselves and in the public sector and those working outside of the public sector, in mm. NGOs, or in the private sector. All right. So it's just about how do we use all the capacity that we have towards the benefit of public health more generally. Because our report shows that during the pandemic, because we didn't do that, many people were denied care. For instance, in terms of testing, more than 60% of the testing happened in the private sector, meaning that a lot of people had to pay out of pocket and we know that those tests were up to 750 rand for, for 18 months of the pandemic. So you couldn't go to work if you didn't have a, a COVID test confirming that you no longer had COVID. Medical schemes didn't always cover it. And a lot of people didn't have medical scheme coverage. So they had to pay for that test. So these significant out-of-pocket expenses that were incurred by people who couldn't afford it. All right. The second Impressive. component when we look 
Russell, I, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm going to, I'm sorry, going to have to interject there uh, because we're completely out of time for this conversation. Um, it's time for me to wrap things up now on sorry, the talking point. No, no problem at all. But I think uh, you've been able to share at least a significant portion of what it is that you have raised uh, in, in that report that you've put together. Uh, Russell, uh, Russell Rainsberg is with uh, the Rural Health Advocacy Project. Uh, sorry to just end it off like that. We've come to the end of the program for today and it is time again for the book reading Sitting Pretty by Christy van der Westhuizen.